0: This is the Light & Life Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Heintzman. Dr. Tim Dwyer is my guest in this episode to talk about what the pandemic revealed about the condition of the church. He'll tie in themes from his book, Revelation, Leaving Speculation Behind. And he isn't shy about articulating the truth. Thanks for joining us. And now, here's Dr. Dwyer.
1: I think with um, Revelation, one starting point is this. In chapters 2 and 3, twice, the Lord says he's testing the churches. And I think that the COVID experience was a testing time. What kind of foundation did we build? Were we building in our congregations? And did people go into a panic, depression, or did people stay steady in their faith? I know a number of churches I've been in where there's, you know, a quarter of the attendance, a third of the attendance. And they're they're comforting themselves with the people watching online. Well, by and large, that, that era should be over now. And and how did a third or a half of the church sort of drift away? So so one of the crucial factors is did the lord test the church during the COVID era for the foundation we built and have we become a religious inquiry society more than a church where jesus holds the lampstands because our concern coming out of COVID, i don't think should be will we survive or what do we do different our concern should be make sure jesus doesn't take our lampstand away like chapters two and three of revelation say we want to be found faithful And the Lord will build his church. Jesus promised to do that as long as we're faithful. The other thing is that I think we've gone through five cycles in my um, kind of ministry life. You know, Postman in the 1980s wrote about amusing ourselves to death. So we went into an entertainment cycle. And then a guy named Robert Brow wrote in Christianity Today in 1990 about the, the mega shift, which was away from traditional theology. And then a guy named Bergler has written about the juvenilization of the church, where church is what youth group once was. And then there was the deconversion. You could be a Christian leader, but deconvert. And in the last several years, social justice. So the issue is we're going through all these different waves instead of getting up to 50,000 feet and saying, what is the Lord's will to build upon the rock so when the storms come, the house stands firm. And I think Revelation 2 and 3 point us back in that direction.
0: I love that idea of testing. If you could uh, unpack this a little more, because some people I think would would lean into the, you know, is it that the Lord was testing us or did it just happen? Um, I think we lean more in that direction today that there's a lot of people think, well, things just happen. And so we, we really have a difficult time today thinking that the Lord is actually testing us. Maybe connect that those dots for us between Revelation 2 and 3, which I remember it, it does test what kind of foundations we have. And COVID, COVID, whether or not we say the Lord tested us, the last year tested us, period. You will just say that. The church, the church was held up for what it was uh, during these moments, but... Why do you think, or do you think, and if you do, why, that the Lord indeed his hand was in this intestus during this season?
1: I think one of the hard things, the true things I'll say is this. There's a line in the old movie Lawrence of Arabia where Lawrence says to a local leader, you become a silly people. I think unfortunately, nationally, we become almost silly. We're kind of, um, and I put it like this, uh, we are an age of Kardashians where we're all saying, look at me. Mm. Um, Whereas the Bible calls us to be lions, you know, to be lions for the faith. And um, um, there's especially this phrase where David has some mighty men who have the faces like lions. Yeah. And so I sort of think about it like this. Um, There were several levels. My students, for example, had to wear masks and they didn't like that. Or they had to be in a Zoom meeting and they didn't like that. But on a big level, what I said to them is this, when my brother was your age, he was being dropped into a rice paddy in Vietnam. And when my father and father-in-law were your age, they were flying missions over Nazi Germany. So having to wear a mask is not that big of a deal compared to what other generations have gone through. And yet, um, we went into this um, kind of hyper-worried mode instead of it's in God's hands, God knows the end from the beginning, and God is kind of seeking and sifting uh, whether we've gone deep enough into the Bible to stand steady, because even in the Bible there's plagues, I mean, you know, in the book of Exodus and David, et cetera, as well as the book of Revelation, and, and so um, I think we went into kind of panic mode um, all too easily in some ways.
0: I would agree. Um, there's been a lot of panic. I think there's been a lot of anger too, and anger has come from some of that panic, especially for people who are on polar opposites of the spectrum. Um, you know, in a, in the United States, that those polar opposites come a lot through political views, either extreme left or extreme right, and yet the church is always somewhat other. So let's talk about that fifty thousand foot view for a minute. What would you say would be like the hallmarks of people who were able to rise above and live as though seated in the heavenly realms with Christ and see things from that 50,000-foot view?
1: I think there's two things um, that I'll get, and the first one is from Revelation chapter 12, where in Revelation chapter 12 you have the introduction of the dragon, Satan. And it says in chapter 12, he deceives the whole world. So Mm -hmm. the first thing is that people should expect there will be attempts to deceive them. And those attempts at deception will probably come from the way right and the way left both. They'll be regularly in our media. They'll repeat it night after night after night so we take them as true. They'll keep us from questioning things. So, So the idea that someone wakes up in the morning wanting to deceive me is a crucial starting point, but that's what Revelation 12 tells us. The second thing to get me up to the 50,000-foot level is I've gone so deep into the Word of God that I have a level of discernment, and that level of discernment is higher than average. You know, a lot of churches are down to one 25-minute sermon on Sunday morning. I can't form a Christian worldview on that. I have to be so deep Mm -hmm. into the Word of God that I have a level of discernment that I'm rising above the deception rather than being swept into the deception. And I think the anger that emerged, especially last summer, part of that anger emerged from levels of deception which were built to make me angry. And to be honest with you, I think that most of the news shows – um, and I won't name the you know most famous ones, but most of the news shows have their goal to get you mad about something. <laughs>
0: well, isn't that the truth?
1: Oh my they just want to get you mad about different things. Yeah. But as long as they get you mad about something, they've done their task of deception. But the believer up 50,000 feet knows someone wants to deceive me, and I've got to get deep enough in the Word that I've got discernment.
0: So let's talk about depth in the Word, because that's a big issue for us today. In fact, I I was preaching... Uh, at the Harvest Annual Conference, which is our old Pittsburgh conference recently. And as we're introducing the values of the free Methodist way, I was talking about God-given revelation, which really is our understanding that we come under the authority of Scripture. It it is our final authority in all matters of faith and practice, which we say, and our discipline says. But yet, I challenged us to believe that we, we have not done our task of Of raising up a biblically literate generation. We basically have a largely biblically illiterate generation. And so what are some of the steps you would suggest? You know, I think there's a lot of people that would agree going deep in the scripture is a good thing, but then there's the how to get there. You know, people think if they get a daily devotional somewhere or they have a peel-off calendar with a scripture of the day on it, that's it. But What would you say gets us deep in the scripture that discernment begins to be the byproduct of that, that wisdom begins to be birthed
1: from that? I think it's some life choices. Um, One of the elements of deception is getting people so busy, you know, taking kids to their travel league or their music lessons. They're so busy, they're not able to connect with the scripture and the people of God. I've got a friend that's a pastor over in Tampa that every Monday night basically teaches through the Old Testament and every Wednesday night basically teaches through the New Testament. And then on Sunday morning, he preaches a sermon kind of as God leads. He's done this for years and years and years and years. He's asking the people of the church not to be people that kind of uh, drop in and shop in, you know, an hour on Sunday morning, but to have a higher level. But that means you have to be wise enough to make life choices. Mm-hmm. that the life choices will be foundational ones that will carry you through storms. And I think that's, that's one of the elements. A second one would be um, Sabbath keeping. You know, I, I can think of in a different era, people go to Sunday school, church, and Sunday night church, and youth group, and something else. I think we need to ask people, Um, um, do you honor the Lord's Day or really want to get home and watch the NFL? Um, So I think there are life choices we have to ask people to make um, to be grounded in the Word, because if you're not grounded, you'll be swept away when the storms come. Um, So I would think a minimum of two to three teaching times per week are necessary for most believers
0: that's good and i think we we do make lots of choices with our time and there's no doubt that people's schedules are certainly different today Uh, and we tend to be very busy and work around the clock and and things are open seven days a week and our lives become seven days in a week instead of five or six so you're mentioning about time in church but when we're studying the word and hearing teaching times i love what your pastor friend is doing that just continually is going through the Old Testament one night, continually going through the New Testament another. But what about like personal application too? Like what is your practice with that? Or what do you teach your students to do when it comes to their own personal time in God's word? Because there's a lot of people, I think, again, that, you know, we have more Bibles in print in the United States than ever before in any nation in the world. And any translation you want with every bent on every translation that we want, if you can't find a, a Bible for babysitters who live in California. You, you know, there's just, there's like a Bible for everyone today with every conceivable bent. And yet we're still a biblically illiterate congregation or, or, or church. So how do we get beyond that? Like beyond, I get the attendance thing and I like that, but how do we get to the place where we're like actually living the word and the word becomes the very standard for the way we want to live our lives?
1: I think at at minimum, a person wanting to grow in Christ that has a Holy Spirit within him or her at minimum is going to devote between a half hour to an hour a day of pure time in the Word. Mm. It might be earlier in the morning. It might be later at night. Um, My standard practice is to um, get up um, usually about 5.15 and go for a prayer walk. It takes about 45 minutes or so, 45 minutes to an hour. And then to normally spend about a half hour to an hour uh, reading, reading pretty much straight through the Old Testament. Usually I try to do five chapters a day um, from the book of Psalms and five chapters a day from wherever I am in the Old Testament. I'm, I'm in Isaiah right now. And then I'm ready for school after that. So um, so, so, I go to teach with my, my cup full, Mm. But I've I've gotten up pretty early, and I've um, put the time in, and I've gotten a word from the Lord. It's been my practice for years and years and years to read five Psalms every day, um, and so you can do you go through a whole book of Psalms in about a month or so if you do that, you know, thirty days or so, and if you do that over five to ten years, uh, your prayer life will develop because the Psalms give us uh, prayers for every situation in life. And then at minimum, you know, probably about five chapters or so of the Bible every day. Um, that, That's day. That's been my standard practice for years and years and years. And I do it because I want to be with God.
0: So as we talked earlier about this desire within us and like really what does it mean to be saved and sanctified and living in Christ to know that he is in us, that we are in him, to use Wesleyan language, that we have this witness of the spirit that we're walking in the scripture way of salvation, you know, like what is the measure? What do we do about people that don't seem to have the want to they're, they're just okay with a, with a measure of attending church, a measure of a little bit of religion in their life. Um, How do we get that heart that yearns and desires and just wants? Like I think Wesley quoted the Psalm so often where he said, whom have I in heaven, but you and earth has nothing I desire besides you. Yeah. Um, what can we do as, as just average everyday people, pastors, leaders, to begin to cultivate that hunger and thirst uh, for the things of God?
1: We have to go back to what the gospel is to start with. And I'll give you an example where I think we've gone astray. We'll tell people salvation is a free gift of God. We'll say that again and again, it's a free gift of God. And I always say to my students something along this line. So suppose someone comes to you and gives you a Maserati and they're going to pay the insurance. They're going to have the gas. They say, it's yours. It's a free gift. Would you be grateful? And they'd say, yeah. I said, then what if um, a week later they call and say, well, could you come and weed my yard? Would you do it? And they'd say, well, okay, you gave me a Maserati. And then a month later they say, I want you to work for my landscape company and they'll say, well, I don't know. I have another job. And then a year later, they come and say, I want you to marry my niece. And that's where the students say, no, you've gone too far. It's a free gift. You can't tell me to do something if you're giving me a free gift. So it goes back to helping people understand salvation is a transforming gift, Mm -hmm. not per se, a free gift, because a free gift implies no obligation and no transformation. And so you tell people it's a free gift, and then, oh, and God might want you to go to the mission field. Wait a second, you said it was free. That doesn't sound very free to me. And it's a free gift, but God wants you to go to church every Sunday. That doesn't sound very free to me. So I think we need to rethink salvation as a transforming gift that changes our affections so I want to be with God. I'm not just getting the Maserati.
0: I like what you said about affections. Wesley used that language. He said the whole train of our affections should follow uh, behind us in our pursuit of God. Um, wow, that's it. So that's something to really think about, a transforming gift, which really does frame the conversation differently. So we know that the gospel is to be transformative, but I would say that when you talk about salvation is a free gift transformation becomes like the add-on well maybe i i don't need to choose that um, it becomes something optional you know well this this church doesn't even talk about that so maybe i'll go over there you know where this church talks about transformation but if we begin to look and say the gospel actually and would you say that the gospel actually uh not only hints at but actually mandates that that those who are saved, that it's a transformational gift, that we, we receive this gift from God, but it, it beckons this transformation in us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I can't have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come to reside within me without transforming my life. If, by definition, a Holy Spirit is in me, I'm going to be impelled towards holiness, and I will have a loathing for the unholy. Mm -hmm. Um, Discuss with my students sometimes their choice of music, which sometimes has some, you know, real foul things in it. And what I come back to is not, you know, I want to wag my finger and tell you what to do. But if the Holy Spirit lives within you, you'll be repulsed by unholiness and drawn to holiness. So it's not necessarily trying to be more moral. It's instead... What the very Father, Son, and Holy Spirit does within a person when they reside within the person.
0: Amen. Timothy Tennant says uh, he he thinks of sanctification as sin is no longer this mistress I keep on the side. It's an arch enemy I wish were dead. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that's that's another way of saying what you're saying about actually being repulsed by by the things of the world, things that are sinful, things that are outside of God's desire and heart and things that go against what he has clearly established for us. Guidance to follow his commands, his laws, um, the
1: law written on our hearts. One of the most misquoted verses, I think, of the Bible is from Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged. But the problem is, a few verses later, Jesus says, watch out for wolves in sheep's clothing. And so I think the fact of the matter is we make judgments all the time. I'm going to eat at this restaurant, not that one. I'm going to vote for this person, not that one. I want this person to do my heart surgery and not that one. We, we make judgments all, I'm going to go to this college and not that college. We all We make judgments all the time. And when you see the humility that Jesus talked about when he talked about the The man who says, God, be merciful to me. When you see the gentleness, when you see someone trying to control their tongue, you're seeing the fruit of the Holy Spirit within a person. When you see someone who desires the Bible rather than uses the Bible to get a thought for the day, when you're seeing someone who wants to pray, I mean, think about the disciples. They come and say, teach us to pray. They want to know how to pray. Mm -hmm. You're watching the transformation of someone's life by the Holy spirit with those things. And I think we, we actually do make those judgments all the time.
0: So let, let's go back to this idea that this time is testing the church. I don't think the testing's over. Uh, You know, there there are places opening up. Now we have the vaccine. And so some life is getting back to normal, but we, we, we still have opportunities to learn. And in fact, Uh, Right at the beginning of the pandemic, I wrote a series of social media posts for the National Prayer Ministry that said we are learning, that there was much for us to learn. Um, What are those things that you think we can still learn as a church?
1: I'll go back to uh, the statement that a man named E.M. Bounds once gave. I think you probably know who E.M. Bounds is. He'd written a lot on prayer in the last generation. E.M. Bounds said, we look for better methods. God wants better people. Amen. And I think the crucial thing is to come out of the pandemic and not say, what's the new method I need? More media, more this, more that. What's the method versus what's the transformation God wants to work in my life and in our church? So I think the crucial thing is to not find the silver bullet method, but instead ask what's the work of God God's trying to do in my heart and so it's becoming a different person rather than trying to find the next silver bullet method so how how can pastors you might
0: we might have individuals who seek the Lord more and I know there are people that during the pandemic have learned have been uh, drawn closer to the Lord instead of looking around and panicking or looking upward and saying Lord what are you doing I'm also of the belief that, that this should be happening in, in community in our churches too. So let's say you're a pastor of a church and what encouragement would you give pastors to continue to lead um, who is left at the church after the pandemic? Some churches have actually grown during the pandemic as far as numbers. Other churches have, have decreased significantly some. Um, what encouragement would you give them to get a community of people to see things through this lens and, and not look horizontally for the next method, but look upward for more of God uh, during this time.
1: A crucial step is to not attempt unity by going to the lowest common denominator, but instead seek for unity by going to maturity. I think that's the pattern of Ephesians chapter 4. When you are mature in Christ, there's unity in Christ. So the key is to build mature people, not just to kind of dumb down. There's a great phrase in Isaiah chapter 61 where it says you'll be the planting of the Lord, the oaks of righteousness. Mm -hmm. Here's a great goal. Make your pastoral goal to be planting oaks of righteousness. And maybe those oaks will, will be fruitful in 10 years or 5 years or 15 years. Uh, Years ago, we had, when we moved to Indiana in 1990, a tree in our front yard, an oak tree that had been hit by lightning, and there was was no leaves there uh, as we moved in in August. But the next year, after it rested through the winter, the leaves came back, it grew stronger than ever, and that's what we want to plant. We want to plant oaks of righteousness Mm. that will, in 5 years, 10 years, 15 years, provide gigantic shade and stability and fruitfulness for people. So so go for maturity. Don't, don't always go to the lowest common denominator.
0: And I totally agree with the go for maturity. And I think a lot of people have went for the lowest common denominator, or they're dealing with people who have been used to going for the lowest common denominator and can't find it today. Uh, and so they're having a hard time getting their footing or moving on. But what else would you just add? Is there anything else burning on your heart, ties between the book or other helpful thoughts you have about helping us live from uh, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms.
1: The other thing for Christian leaders is don't be afraid to be an adult. I think what happens is we get in this phrase where we want to be cool, and I want to be cool and make a connection with you. Um, what I think has is, is happened to um, my college students to millennials even sub baby boomers is is there's no adults in their lives anymore adults who are um, kind of models of christian maturity that you know that they are 3 miles further down the road than you are so 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 instead of trying to be cool and hip instead of trying to you know make this kind of connection don't be afraid to be an adult because people will follow you. People will follow you because in our world, there are too few adults in general, but too few adults in the spiritual realm too. Um, when I first started teaching in 1990 at Anderson University, there was a man named James Earl Massey that was the dean of the seminary at that point, and and uh, he, he died about two years ago. Dr. Massey, for me, when I, I was 30, 31 years old, he was – 62 or 63 at that point he was an adult believer and I knew he was three miles down the road further than me and that's where I wanted to be so so instead of trying to be cool I'd say don't be afraid to be an adult because we need some adults in this world
0: I think there's a lot of people I would say that there were there were spiritual giants in my life you know there were people who out in front of me I could tell just had wisdom and discernment. I couldn't even articulate that that's what it was at the time, but it was very clear that they were they were just something I aspired to be. And I, I think that's a good word to just be that kind of person today, to not be afraid to be that as a leader and raise others up to do the same. And, the, and there's nothing haughty or prideful in being a spiritual adult. In fact, it's full of love and mercy and humility, but you see such power in it. You just immediately know I've got to be that. I want to be that. I'm drawn to that because you can just see the work of, of God in someone's life.
1: And, and I, I put it like this. Your spiritual maturity should be greater than your spiritual responsibility.
0: Yeah. When I was a child, I thought like a child and spoke like a child, acted like a child. But we aren't supposed to stay there forever. We're supposed to move on as the scriptures teach. Yeah, that's good. You can purchase Dr. Dwyer's book, Revelation, Leaving Speculation Behind, at freemethodistbooks.com. What will you take away from this conversation? Will you seek to go deeper in God's Word? Are you wanting to be more discerning in these days of great deception? Or will you ask God to be truly transformed by the renewing of your mind? Well, thanks for listening, and be sure to listen in to our ever-growing lineup of episodes to strengthen your faith For the Light in Life podcast, I'm Brett Heinzman.